euangelion. It's the Greek word for good news, or it's translated gospel in many of our texts. If you're in your growth groups this morning, you studied a passage where Paul, right smack in the middle of his Galatian ministry, he had uh, uh, left Antioch, he and Barnabas and John Mark, and had, had gone east to the islands and then gone north up into southern Galatia, and they were planting churches throughout South Galatia. They were headed on a, on a kind of a north-northeaster and then back to the east track, and they were going to plant these churches, and they'd go back and, and revisit those churches on the way back to Antioch. And we found ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 14. It is one of the, the more amazing passages of, of Paul's fortitude, his strength, and it gives you some insight into what was most important to him. And I just wanted to take you back there. If you weren't in your growth group this morning, I'll catch you up just a little bit. If you were, it'll be a quick review. But he had come into Lystra, and while he was in Lystra, uh, he found a man who was sitting there who was lame, and Paul uh, saw that the man had faith to be healed, and he spoke to him to get up, and the man got up, and it was such an emotional and moving uh, event that many of the people in that city, they began to worship Paul and Barnabas. They thought that they were gods. They, they identified them with, with the Greek gods of Hermes and Zeus, and they began to bow down and worship them, and Paul and Barnabas were having none of that. They tore their, their robes, and they began to cry out, no, no, we are not gods. People, they say, why are you doing these things? We are men also. We are people just like you, and we're here to proclaim good news to you that you can turn away from these things to the living God. Well, it didn't take long. Here, Paul and Barnabas went from being worshipped as gods by the people in Lystra to just a few days later, some of the Jews who came from uh, Antioch of, of the Galatian region and Iconium, and they, they came down to Lystra. They won over the crowds, apparently through uh, their persuasive speech and argumentation, to the extent, Acts 14, 19 says, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. Now, pause there for just a moment. Paul and Barnabas come to simply preach the gospel, to call people to turn from their religion, to turn from uh, their, their old ways, to, to turn away from false gods, and to turn to the one true living God, the good news. They're preaching Jesus. And while they're preaching Jesus, they happen to be a part of, of seeing God heal someone, and all of a sudden they are worshipped as gods but they just keep preaching Jesus. They don't do anything else. They say, look, we're not gods. We're here to preach Jesus. We're here to tell you to turn from your gods and turn to the one true living God. And they kept it simple. They just kept preaching the gospel. But the Jews who loved their religion and loved the power that was rooted in their religion isn't it almost always about power and money anyway? They loved that so much that they came and they, they convinced these people who had just been worshiping Paul and Barnabas to turn against Paul and Barnabas to the point where they stoned Paul until they thought he was dead. Amazing enough in and of itself, but I want you to see what happens next. The scripture says that 
the disciples, those followers of Christ, gathered around Paul outside the city. Imagine weeping, tears, crying out loud. And they, they recognized that Paul wasn't dead. Maybe he was knocked out. Maybe he was unconscious. Maybe he was in some type of coma. Scripture doesn't tell us. Those who stoned him thought he was dead, left him for dead. The Christians gathered around him. And maybe it was a thing here in Scripture to tell us what happened. Except this. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into town. Well, that's amazing enough. But then the next day, the next day, after being stoned and left for dead, he gets up and he travels to Derby, the next town down the road. Now, remember, Paul didn't get in his pickup truck and drive down to Derby from Lystra after being stoned to death. Paul didn't catch the bus. He didn't take a short flight. Paul got up with Barnabas and walked the next day to Derby. And here's what I want you to see because I think this is most important. What did they do when they got to Derby? Verse 21 says, After they preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith. You see what happened? Up After being stoned and left for dead, rests that night, walks to the next town, and starts preaching the gospel again. It just seemed like everywhere he went, he couldn't do anything but preach the gospel. Throughout all of southern Galatia, he preached the gospel. Whether he was being stoned for it, whether he was being worshipped for it, he just kept pointing back to the gospel. He kept pointing back to Jesus. He kept preaching the gospel. That's what Paul understood was the central, key, most important thing that he could communicate to everybody that he came in contact with. That gives us a little bit of insight into why. Here we are in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at Galatians 4, 21 through 31. And as we come to this text in Galatians 4, 21 through 31, Paul can't stop defending the gospel. Paul starts out the Galatian letter by writing back to the Galatians, saying, I can't believe how quickly you left your faith, what I preached to you when I was among you in your churches. I can't believe that you turned so quickly from the simple gospel and started turning off to religion. And then he defends his own apostolic authority, talking, giving evidence of why he truly is an apostle and authorized to, to, to be a representative and preach the gospel. And then from Galatians 3 all the way through the end of Galatians chapter 4, Paul is making his theological argument for the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. He starts with an illustration about Abram or Abraham, and he ends with this illustration about Abram and Sarah, Sarah and Hagar in particular, and, to, and the two covenants that you see from Sarah and Hagar. All of this Chapter two is a defense of the gospel. Then chapter three is in chapter two in particular, it's a, it's a personal testimony of how he defended the gospel before Peter and some of the, the false prophets and some of the Judaizers at, at Antioch and at, at Jerusalem. And he comes to chapter three through four. It's his theological treaty in defense of the gospel. Now, if you're tired of hearing Paul's defense of the gospel, Next Sunday, we'll get beyond that because Paul is going to get to the passage in Galatians chapter 5, 1, where he begins to tell us, okay, in light of this, this is what you do with your life. But why is it that Paul spends so much time 
defending the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. I think as I've worked my way through this passage again over the last several weeks, the Lord has, a, has given me a glimpse personally of why this is what matters most. Whether it be funerals or chaplain calls, people that are truly hurting, people people that don't know for sure if they were to die today, if they'd go to heaven or hell. No one even cared what my eschatology was. No one even cared if I believed in elder-led church government or elder-ruled government or Presbyterian style or Episcopalian style. What people want to know is, is my mother, is my brother, is my son who just died in heaven. And that's answered in one way and one way only. What was their response to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ? What is Paul's gospel? I want to give you his succinct rundown of it. First Corinthians 15, he reminds the Corinthian church, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preach to you which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I passed on to you the most, or as most important, what I received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, the twelve, and to many others. That, Paul tells us, is the good news. Christ died for your sins according to the scripture. Christ was buried. Christ arose again according to the scripture. And Christ made it known as he walked among those who believed in him that he was alive, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. That's the simple gospel that Paul preached everywhere he went. That's the, the same gospel that got him stoned. That's the same gospel that got him beaten. That's the same gospel that, that got him uh, involved in shipwrecks and arrested simply because he preached the simple gospel. And that is the gospel that he stands throughout Galatians chapters really one through four to defend with all of his wisdom and all of his might as he writes this with his own hand. That is why it matters so much. That is what, that's what's going to make the difference. What you do with the gospel is what's going to make the difference when you take your last breath on this earth. Paul defends the gospel here at the end of Galatians chapter 4 by going back and using an illustration. Not the easiest thing to preach, but I want to walk you through Paul's illustration, and maybe that'll trigger something in you. If you have never put your faith in Christ who died for your sins, 
was buried and rose again. If you've never put your faith in him and him alone for your eternal life, for your salvation, I implore you to do that. Listen to Paul's argument once again here in this text. Galatians 4, 21 through 31, the scripture says, tell me you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave, another by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through the promise. These things are being taken figuratively. So Paul tells us, look, I'm using this as an illustration. I want you to hear the story, and I want you to learn something from it. These things are being taken figuratively. For the woman, the women represent two covenants. One is for Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, childless woman unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now, you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now. What does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. Now, if you don't know this story, this story relates back. It points to the story in Genesis chapter, really 16 and 17, is the core focus or the core text of this story that Paul is using as an illustration. It really begins in Genesis chapter 12 when God makes a covenant with Abraham, makes a promise to Abraham that says, if you'll leave your hometown and you'll go to a place that I'll show you, I will bless you greatly. He comes again to Abraham in chapter 15. Now, at that point, Abraham was 75 years old when he left his home, gathered up his, his slaves, his flocks, gathered up everything and, and left uh, to go to this, to this place that God was going to show him, which, which ended up being the land that we now call Israel and Palestine and, and, and much of that area. Then Acts, or in, in Genesis chapter 15, sorry, uh, God renews his covenant with Abraham and makes this promise to him that he's going to give him a child and that through his child, there, he's going to have many descendants and, and he's going to have this great uh, uh, group of descendants and this incredible impact on the entire world is what it comes down to. That through Abraham, his children are going to be like the, the, the stars in the sky. You can't even count them all, he tells us in, in Genesis 15. Well, you come to Genesis 16, and Abraham still hasn't had a child. And Sarah, his wife, decides that she's going to step in and help him, because at this point, Abraham is 85, and Sarah is only one year younger. But Abraham, I mean, Sarah has a slave, uh, a female slave that was an Egyptian woman named Hagar. 
So Sarah says to Abraham in, in chapter 16 of Genesis, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go to my slave and perhaps through her, I can build a family. Messed up, isn't it? Especially in our idea of culture and marriage and everything today. First of all, well, he's 85 years old. There's all kinds of things going on here. But he does. Abraham agreed to his wife said. And so Abraham's wife took her slave, Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave, it to, gave her to her husband, Abraham, as a wife for him. This happened after Abraham had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when she saw that she was pregnant, when Sarah saw that she was pregnant, her, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarah said to Abram, you're responsible for my suffering. I'm like, wait a minute, wasn't this your idea in the first place? You're responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when you saw that she was pregnant, and she became contemptible to her, may the Lord judge between me and you. And Abraham replied to Sarah, here, your slaves in your hands, do whatever you want with her. Sarah mistreated her and made her leave. God met, quick story, God meets Hagar, says, look, I'm going to bless you, but go back to Abraham. Uh, he has responsibility. He'll take care of you. At the end of chapter 16, we see there, Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar's son named Ishmael was born. He was 86 when Ishmael was born. But God wasn't done yet because God had made Abram a promise, or Abraham as we come to know him later. Chapter 17 the scripture says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him again. I want you to pause and think about that because we've had another 13 years pass. So this, this child, Ishmael, is a, becoming a teenager. God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a son with your wife. You go down to verse 15 of Genesis 16. The scripture says, uh, God said to, to Abraham... As for your wife, Sarah, don't call her Sarah or Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell down on his face and laughed. <laughs> He's 99 years old. God's telling him, look, don't give up. I'm going to give you a, actually, he's 100. Sarah's 99. He said, I'm going to give you a child with your wife. He falls down and he laughs and he says to God, can, I, can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90, not 99, I'm sorry, can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will name him Isaac. And I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. That is the story that the Apostle Paul is pointing us back to. God made a promise through to Abraham that it was through his son Isaac that was born to him and his wife Sarah that God was going to bless the entire world. It was through him that the Messiah was going to come. It was through Isaac's lineage, not Ishmael's lineage that the Messiah was going to be born. Ishmael, from that point forward, was going to be a picture of man trying to do it their own way. 
Ishmael and Hagar were an illustration of, of what happens when we try to do God's job for him. When we try to step in and we try to do it our way, whereas Sarah and Abraham, they were going to be an illustration of two people who had no hope of ever having a child. They were advanced in age. Sarah later says her womb was closed, her womb was shut, and God blessed them with a child at 90 and 100 years old. God provided a miracle that it could not have come any other way, and the promise of God was being fulfilled through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Now, before we get far too off in the weeds here, because when you begin to look at the lineage and the histories of all that's happened between uh, those two different nations that came out of those two children, I want us to stick with what Paul is using this to illustrate. Paul says... I want you to hear this because I'm using this figuratively. Ishmael is the one, if you go back to verse in Galatians chapter 4, verse 24, these things are be taken figuratively for the two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. That is Hagar. Hagar represents Mount Sinai. What took place on Mount Sinai? The giving of the Ten Commandments. The, 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 this picture, the initial outpouring and the giving of the law. So what Scripture is, what, what Paul's trying to tell them here is Ishmael represents the law. Ishmael was a son who was, who, who was born uh, out of slavery. And Paul even makes a further connection here because he says, because Ishmael represents the law and Ishmael represents what took place on Mount Sinai, Ishmael also represents the temple in Jerusalem. That can be a little disconcerting because we tend to think of the temple in Jerusalem as being the holy place of God. But at this point, after Jesus died on the cross, you remember what happened in the Holy of Holies in the temple of Jerusalem. The veil that separated man from God was torn in two from top to bottom. And the temple in Jerusalem, that Holy of Holies, no longer holds the same place in God's design and God's plan as what it did up to that point. I want to, don't want to get into an argument about what's going on in Jerusalem now and what that, that temple mount may hold for the future because that's not a part of this text. But what this text does want us to understand is that Jerusalem at this point, because of the, the, it is the center of the Jewish law, it's the center of the Jewish religion, as Paul is speaking to the Galatians, it represents the law. It represents those who are trying to to sacrifice enough, those who are trying to do enough to measure up to reach God. And, and so that represent Hagar, Hagar's son, Ishmael, represents the temple in Jerusalem. Ishmael is born into slavery. And Paul is trying to help us to understand that those of you who want to hold on to the law and you want to try to continue to do whatever it takes to measure up to God, you're, you're in slavery. You're in slavery to self. You're in slavery to the law. And you're in slavery to your own sin. You're in slavery to your own flesh. Because he goes on to say that that represents, that slavery represents our flesh. You are born in flesh. Now think about that. Ishmael was born because Sarah and Abram 
made a decision out of their flesh that they could do something that God had not been able to do. God made a promise that God was not able to fulfill, so we're going to do it on our own. We're going to do what we can to get there. None of us would ever do that, would we? I see some of you laughing because you've been there. You've been at a place in your life where you, it just seemed like you were stopped. And instead of trusting God, you came up with your own plan. Sometimes, even when you knew that God had a different plan, you had a need, you had a desire, you had something that you wanted to get done that you needed to fulfill. God wasn't moving quick enough for you. And so you chose your own way out of your own flesh. And when you do that, every time it brings you right back into slavery. When you sin, you become a slave to sin until you confess that sin. If you are not trusting in Christ, you're a slave to sin. And he tells us one last thing about those who hold on to the law, who hold on to the religion, who try to do things out of their flesh, you try to get to God in your own strength. He tells us one more thing that's important about those that are represented by Ishmael and Hagar. You will never be co-heirs of the son. Never. It doesn't matter how much religion you have. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter if you could even say that your pure religion reaches all the way back to Abraham who received a promise from God. And that's what Paul's trying to tell the Jews here. You may claim that your religion, your works, your, your processes go all the way back to Abraham whom you call father. But Abraham is not your spiritual father unless you have taken Christ by faith. And before we look at the, the second half of this, those are the heirs of the law. We have, we're going to look at the heirs of the promise. I want you to hear this from Paul's perspective in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says it a little bit of a different way, but I want you to hear it as he says it there. I'm going to begin down in, in, in verse 7. It said, Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring, talking to the Roman Christians, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. The promise that God gave Abraham and Sarah is being fulfilled today. Paul says, not through the physical offspring of Abraham and Isaac, but through the spiritual offspring of Abraham and Isaac. And so those who claim a physical descendancy from Abraham are not guaranteed heirship. You're not guaranteed to become a child of God because once Jesus came and Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, this is the good news, and the veil was rent. Heirship in the kingdom of God is no longer limited to physical descendants. In fact, it never really was anyway. Heirship has been given over to those who are descendants of Abraham's faith. You can see it even in the Exodus 
In the first chapter of the Exodus, as the, the, the Israelites and the multitude who came out of Egypt with the Israelites were escaping out into the desert, God told Moses, those who are with you who are just slaves and sojourners, if they're not Israelites, don't let them take the Lord's Supper unless they by faith become Israelites. They become circumcised. And then if they do that, if they worship me, if they by faith identify with me from that day forward, they will be like you. They will be Israelites. And so even in the Exodus, those whom God accepted as his children were those who came to him by faith. Just as Paul has argued that Abraham came by faith, not through descendancy. It was the children of Abraham who put faith in God that God accepts and makes co-heirs with his son. So you look at it from the other perspective. Not only did he give us here this image of the, the first covenant, those the heir who were heirs to the law, those who were heirs to slavery, he gives us the image of the second covenant, those who were heirs like Isaac, who came through a promise. Isaac was Sarah's son. Sarah was 99 years old. There's no way she could have a child. There, there, she could not do anything about it. There was no medication she could take. There was no surgery she could have. There was nothing that Sarah could do. And yet God came and said, I will give you a child. I'm, I've made you a promise, Abraham, and that promise is going to be fulfilled through your lineage and through your wife, Sarah. And he did. God made a promise that he kept. Sarah, Paul says, represents a new Jerusalem, a new center of, of worship of a holy God. I believe that's why in John chapter 3, when, when Jesus is, is asked by Nicodemus about where, where you know, how, how can I become born again? He says, you have to be born of the spirit and of truth. And then in John chapter 4, when the woman who's, who's at the well asked Jesus about where are we supposed to worship? My ancestors worship here. Your ancestors worship over there. Where are we supposed to worship? Jesus said a day is coming when you'll neither worship in, 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 in Jerusalem on that mountain or where your ancestors worship. You will worship God in spirit and in truth. Paul says that through Christ, there's a, a this promise, this freedom that we have in Christ represents the new Jerusalem in verse 26, which is above and is free. It's not dependent upon a locale. It's not dependent upon a lineage. Sarah's son, Isaac, represents the Jerusalem from above, a spiritual temple where God resides. Isaac was born in freedom. That's what you're going you're to see him flesh out, especially next week. <clears throat> In fact, almost, I'll just go ahead and read chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ set us free. That's as much a beginning of a new thought as it is an ending of this thought. Because if you are, Isaac was born in freedom because he was born to the, to the wife of Abraham, not to a slave. And he represents freedom. And so Paul is telling us that all believers who are co-heirs with Christ, who are descendants of Abraham by faith, are represented as free people. We're free from our sin. We're free from the law. We are set free. 
It doesn't matter what your religion, it doesn't matter what your history is, it doesn't matter how much you've sinned, it doesn't matter whether you've been involved in all kinds of stuff in your past and various things, whether it's it's witchcraft, as we, we I talked about with a man this week, it doesn't matter where you've come from. In Christ, you are set free. And, and it is in him that we have hope and have a future. We are born not of slavery. We are born not of a desire for the flesh or from the work of the flesh. We are born again through a promise. Just as, as Abraham and, and Hagar and Sarah involved in that made a fleshly decision to bring Ishmael into the world, trying to fulfill God's purpose, God and God alone was able to bring Isaac into the world. And it was through his power that in his promise that Isaac was born. And Paul says, this is the, the, the figurative language. This is what I want you to see. If you are born again through Christ, if you understand the gospel and you've received the gospel and you were born anew, you were born free. You're, you're born through the promise of God. You're connected to a promise. You're not tied to the law. And then lastly, there, just as he said, those who are connected to the law will never be co-heirs of the Son. Those who are connected to Christ, who are born in this freedom, will be co-heirs to his Son. That an heirship that can never be lost. We are children of God, as he said last week. We can look to the heavens and cry out from the innermost part of our being, Abba, Father, because he is our Father, not our owner. We've been born of God, not slaves of God, but we're children of God. And we become co-heirs with Christ, his Son. Remember how Paul started this passage, this illustration. He said, tell me, you want to be under the law? Don't you even hear the law? Don't you understand that if you want to be under the law, if you, if you believe that what it takes for you to reach God is you have to obey the rules, you have to follow the law, you have to fulfill the religious progression, you will never make it. You'll never be good enough. You can't be a co-heir with his son. He'll never be your father. You, you will, you'll be like Ishmael. You'll, you'll always be separated from the family of God. If you want to be a part of the family, don't hold to the law. Hold to the good news. Hold to the truth that Jesus died for your sin and Jesus is enough. That Jesus rose again and that as you identify with his resurrection, that is enough to give you life everlasting. And Jesus is coming back. Hold on to the fact that Jesus died, Jesus buried, Jesus rose, and Jesus has been seen alive, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is what matters. True disciples of Jesus are children of the promise. He tells us here, true disciples of Christ will be persecuted for their faith. Sometimes that persecution just comes from a simple misunderstanding. 
This week, I, I had the privilege of meeting in my office with, with a man, and, and I know you won't mind me telling just a bit, Albert, of your story, of a man who, who's, who's, he's seen more in life than most of us will ever see. He's born in Kenya. He's, as he grew up in Kenya, he, he uh, was exposed to the, to the evangelical church. He was exposed to Catholicism. He was exposed to witchcraft. He was involved in witchcraft for a time. And he was exposed to, to Jesus. And one of the things that really struck me as, as we had our conversation in the office this week was, was when he said this, uh, the difference in Christianity, and what I understand about Christianity and, and everything else, is all of those other religions, they had something that you had to do. You had rules and regulations. You had things that you had to do, witchcraft. You had to go through all these ceremonies and all this crazy stuff going on and, you know, stuff going on with your body and just all kinds of things. And, and all of those other religions, there was something you had to do, but Christianity was, it's just simple. It's just Jesus. You, you, you trust by faith Jesus. Now, the problem with that is sometimes it's too simple. It's so simple, it's hard for people to grasp. It's so simple, it's easy to be made fun of. Oh, you're saying all you have to do is put your faith in, in this fairy God up there somewhere, someone who died on the cross. All you have to do is put your faith in him and you'll have everlasting life. If you believe God's word, if you believe the gospel, that's exactly what the gospel teaches. You believe that he died for your sin. First, you have to believe that you're a sinner and that he died for your sin, that he rose again. Yes, it's not easy to do, but it's simple. In fact, it's so, sometimes it's just too easy to accept. It's too easy to believe. And the truth is, even though Albert had known the, the truth, until Tuesday, when I asked him that question, if you were to die today, you're out here on the bridge, you're, you're to run off the bridge, you, you had a wreck and you, you were going to heaven or hell, would you know for sure where you're going? And he'd said, well, I don't know, because I've done this and I've done that and I've done that and I've done that and I've done all these things. And what we talked about then was, it's not about what you did that establishes whether or not you're a child of God. In fact, you had already said that earlier in the conversation. And the lights begin to come on. It's not trusting what we've done or haven't done. It's trusting Jesus. Do you believe the simplicity of the gospel and are you trusting in Jesus? Albert made that decision Tuesday morning at about 10.15 to at that point to fully trust Jesus and nothing else. He's going to be baptized next week, God willing, right? That's our plan. To put on display his newfound trust in Christ and Christ alone for his eternal life. Praise the Lord. See, all of that other stuff is out there. There's a lot of things that we could study that are important, that are deep, that are meaningful. But there is nothing that caused Paul to fight tooth and nail 
to argue from every theological direction, to argue from personal experience, to, to, to do everything he could to bring the Galatian churches, not one church, remember the, the region of Galatia, those churches who are being inundated with a false gospel, being told again and again, yes, you need Jesus, but he's not enough. You need Jesus and you need circumcision. You need Jesus and you need Judaism. You need Jesus and... Paul wanted them to understand that once you go down that road, you go back to the law because Jesus is enough. If you don't believe that his death on the cross and his resurrection is enough, then you don't believe the gospel. And the gospel is what saves you. The gospel is what saved me. That's why as a 12-year-old boy, I couldn't understand all the theology in the world, saying that I had sinned. My mom and brothers told me that all the time. I knew I was a sinner. I did a lot of bad things. But I knew I'd sinned. And I heard God's word from the pulpit declaring that all who've sinned have fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. You'll be eternally separated from God because of your sin, not because of what you've done or haven't done, but because of your sin. And your only hope is Jesus. That's why even Thomas, who had walked with Jesus for three years, had heard all of Jesus' teaching, the night before Jesus died, when Jesus tells them that he's prepared a place for him, he's going to go, he's going to go to heaven, he's going to go to that place, he's going to come back, and he's going he's to bring them to be with himself. Thomas says, Jesus, where are you going? We don't know how to get there. Jesus kind of just shook his head. He said, Thomas, and you've been listening. <laughs> I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've known me, you know the Father and you'll be fine. But Jesus is telling Thomas, you don't have to have it all figured out, Thomas. You don't have to understand all the doctrine. You don't have to know all the theology. You need to know me. Folks, that is the good news. Eternal life. Heaven. The, the, the bounties that God wants to pour out on his children is not reserved for those of a particular lineage, for those of a particular social class, for those of a particular skin color, those of a particular religion, those of a particular philosophy. To be a co-heir with Christ to be able to call out to the, the one and only creator of the universe, Abba, Father, requires one thing. That is that you put your faith and trust in Jesus who died, who was buried, and who rose again for you. It's simple. It's, it's not easy. Because to get there, you have to drop your pride. Quit trying to get there on your own. Deny maybe some things you've been taught about religion and about good deeds. So yeah, it's not necessarily easy, but it's not complicated. You don't have to memorize the theology. You have to look to Jesus and call out to him. But that's the only way. There's actually no other way, no other way to eternal life except through Jesus. Yes, the gospel is simple. And yes, it seems that sometimes 
Even we as Christians who ought to love and cherish the good news, we kind of get tired of hearing it. But if we're tired of hearing it, I'd suggest it's because we've taken it for granted. I ran into far too many people this week that I wish, I wish someone had taken the time to tell their loved one who had just died about Jesus. That's what was important. That's what's going to make the difference when we have to give an account. Do you know Jesus? What have you done with the good news? If you have not put your trust in Christ, you're trusting whatever else for eternal life, I'm going to plead with you once again. Today, make that decision that you're no longer going to trust yourself you're going to trust Jesus for your everlasting life. I want to talk to you about it. I'll be up here. Nathan will be up here. We'll pray with you. If too many people come, Cole will help us out. He'll tell you about Jesus. Kirby will tell you. But if you don't know, if you were to die today, whether you'd spend eternity in heaven or hell, please don't leave here until you've settled that. And folks, if you've minimized the gospel, if, you're, if you have loved ones who don't know or you're not sure about, pray for urgency. I don't know how much time is left. I really don't. I, I believe with all of my heart that, that there's going to be a rapture. Jesus is going to come back sometime. And when he comes back, he's going to come back suddenly. In the blink of an eye, with a trumpet sound. We don't know when that is. I, I hear people this week, I've had people tell me, I wish Jesus would just come back. The world's getting too bad. But in my heart, one of the cries of my heart is, but I still know people who are lost. I still know that if Jesus were to come back today, I know some who'd be left behind. If you know those people, ask God to give you the strength to tell them the gospel. Tell them your story. Tell them how Jesus saved you. Or just tell them what Paul said was most important. Jesus died for your sin. He was buried and he rose again. And he wants to give you everlasting life if you'll just trust him. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.